0: It's good to see everybody this morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11? The last few verses of chapter 11 actually set up chapter 12, but uh, let's back up to verse 53 and just start from there. Then from that day on, they plotted, that would be the Jewish leadership, scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, plotted to put him, Jesus, to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they saw Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will not come to the feast? Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So, between verses 53 and 55, roughly three months has passed. We have gone from January to the beginning of April. We know that because John tells us in verse 55 the Passover of the Jews was near. Now the announcement that the passover over of the Jews was near reminds us that we are coming to the end of Jesus' public ministry. This would be the last over he, last passover he would observe on earth with his disciples, the very passover that he would be crucified on. Notice verse 55 calls the passover, the passover of the Jews, As we have said many times before in John's Gospel, when he talks about the Jews, he um, most often has in mind the uh, Jewish leadership. Scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, those folks who made up the, the religious leadership of Israel. And it's interesting that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls it the Passover of the Jews. Not the Lord's Passover, as he originally referred to it when he first instituted it in Exodus 12, verse 11. My point is something had happened to corrupt it. That's the point. The Holy Spirit was now distancing himself. God was now distancing himself from the feast he had originally uh, instituted, but now had been corrupted. It had been taken over by the religious Jews who were corrupt, and often using these feasts to um, for their own benefit. Okay, we know that originally the Passover was a feast that commemorated uh, God delivering His people out of the out of their bondage in Egypt, out of their slavery, and it looked forward, as we know in the New Testament, Paul tells us that it looked forward to Jesus, our Passover Lamb, being sacrificed for us on Calvary's cross, whose blood once applied to our lives by faith. What it means to be born again, you receive Christ by faith, applying His blood to your life by faith, and when you do, it causes the judgment of God to pass over our lives and not touch us. Now, Romans 8.1, John 5.24 talks about how we have passed from death to life. Uh, you know, how that, you know, the judgment of God is passed over us because we are now in Christ. Now, that only happens, guys. The only way to escape coming judgment for a person is, well, obviously, you know, there are many who are religious people. And they think they're right with God. And uh, these were the Pharisees and scribes. They were of that mindset. The only way, and just what Jesus was talking about his entire ministry to these people, uh, that the only way to escape the judgment that's coming um, is to no longer offer God religion, works and sacrifices but to come to Jesus by faith and uh, when you do that then you are placed in Christ you are sealed in Christ as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 you are sealed safely and secure in Jesus under the day of redemption or salvation right that once you are in Christ you have escaped the wrath that is coming upon this world that's very important right that uh, you need people need to realize they think that because they go to church, and uh, keep certain sacraments and uh, feast days and holy days and whatever, uh, that they are safe. Uh, but that's not true. There's only safety in Christ, and to be in Christ, you have to receive Him into your heart as your Lord and your Savior. And then Proverbs 18, verse 10 kicks in, uh, which says, The Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into him and are safe, safe from coming judgment. Well, that brings us to chapter 12. Now we're six days before the Passover, six days before Jesus' crucifixion. Keep that in mind. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead, uh, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, there they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Guys, of all the places in the Bible where worship is talked about, this is the only place in Scripture I can think of where someone actually exemplified it. it. When Mary of Bethany broke open that alabaster flask of of precious, precious oil of spikenard and poured it upon Jesus preparing his body for burial, She became a living illustration of what a life of worship is all about. Why is it important that we understand what a life of worship is all about? Well, primarily because Jesus told us in John chapter 4 that the Father is seeking true worshipers, those that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. You see, a lot of people worship God in their own way. But as Jesus said in John 4, there is acceptable worship and then there is Unacceptable worship. And we need to understand that acceptable worship is offered up to God by true worshipers. Unacceptable worship is offered up to God by people who think they know God but really don't. They are the religious unbelievers. Mary of Bethany was a true worshiper. She is found only three times in the Gospels. And in each instance she is seen at the feet of Jesus. We see her in Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, where she is sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his words. And then she came and fell at his feet in sorrow after the death of her brother Lazarus, as recorded in John 11, verses 28 to 32. And then finally, we see her right here in John 12 worshiping at the feet of Jesus and anointing him with the fragrant oil of spikenard, also recorded in Matthew 26, verse 7. What can Mary of Bethany teach us about the nature of worship? I want to just stop and say this, because I told first service this, and I need to tell you this. The church of Jesus Christ has fallen into pragmatism. What does that mean? where messages and where people in Christianity are looking at their faith in very pragmatic terms. In other words, if it doesn't help me for the moment, I'm not really interested. And so they're only looking And of course, a lot of churches accommodate this and give these hyper practical, pragmatic messages, which I'm not saying is necessarily a bad idea or wrong, but it misses the bigger picture. I mean, God is not about tinkering in my life in the moment. He's about getting me to see the big picture. What my life in Jesus, in Jesus is really all about on a grand scale. Didn't Jesus say, lift up your eyes and look? The church has gotten very myopic. Where we're only seeing what's in front of us, the problems that we're facing. And then we come to church and we expect the pastor to deal with those problems. And the greater issues, what God wants you to be in Christ, are being neglected. This is one of those sections that we must pay extra careful attention to. Because this is the heart of God. Jesus said, this is what the Father is seeking after. That to gather around, in fact, all of redemptive history, check out Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. All of redemptive history is moving towards the culmination of a worship community in heaven that will forever worship God in spirit and in truth. I mean, we've talked about this. You ask people, you know, what was the purpose of God saving you? Oh, to keep me from going to hell. No, it wasn't. That was a nice byproduct, no doubt about it. But that was not God's primary concern when he saved you and me. He saved us so that we would become true worshipers. If that is the goal of all redemptive history, and it starts right now, as I've given my heart to Christ, let's be honest then, we need to understand what it means to be a true worshiper. Now you can go to John 4, in our studies, that we, we did like a four or five part study on that idea, but I want to pick it up also here in John chapter 12. I'm calling this little two-part message, the fragrance of worship, because it's very important. And so it it becomes vitally important uh, that we study this to learn, well, as Mary is being used as an example, an illustration of what a life of true worship is, what can we learn from what she did here? Well, there's several things. We'll start this week, finish next week. But what can Mary of Bethany teach us about the nature of worship? Well, first of all, that worship, and I've gotten my notes, true worship is costly. And I've done that to differentiate between false, unacceptable worship that so many people and churches are offering up to God, even as we speak in churches all across this world. But true worship is the worship that is acceptable to God. That's the only one we need to be concerned with. So the first thing Mary teaches us about the nature of true worship is that true worship is costly. Verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. It cost Mary something very precious to worship her Lord in this way. We are told that this pound of spikenard was worth 300 denarii, almost a year's wage back then for a working man and a soldier. They worked for one denarii a day. The first lesson we learn from Mary's act of worship is that worship involves sacrifice. True worship involves sacrifice by giving to God what's most precious to us, not the leftovers of our time, of our energy, or our possessions. Mary gave the most precious thing she owned to her Lord in worship, and in her case, it was this oil of spikenard. What is it? Well, spikenard was made from something called nard. Does that help? <laughs> yeah, what is nard? Well, it came from or it comes from a flowering plant that uh, grows up in the Himalayas between China and Tibet. It had to be brought out on the backs of camels down the Himalayan mountains all the way back to Israel, where it was made into a costly perfumed oil and often placed in one of these alabaster flasks. Needless to say, it was a very costly procedure and yielded a very precious commodity. As we just said, this pound was worth almost a year's wage. There's something else, though, about this you may not realize. This oil of sparknard was probably Mary's dowry. It was probably Mary's dowry. In those days, if you wanted to make an investment in the future, there weren't any stocks or IRAs or savings bonds that you could invest in. So instead, they would invest in gold, silver, precious stones, and even sometimes in precious ointments and perfumes. This is apparently what Mary had done. She had made a very costly investment in the spikenard to be saved for a future time when a man would want to marry her. This became her dowry. By this time, obviously, her father, who would normally be the one that had to give the dowry uh, to a suitor, to a potential husband for a daughter, he was dead. And uh, So Mary saved this up herself for her own wedding someday or her own marriage in an act of true love and worship though she broke the flask open and poured it out in Jesus anointing his head and Matthew tells us also anointing his feet to the world or even to the average Christian her worship seemed I think extravagant to the extreme extravagant in the extreme but when we're talking about worshiping Jesus, think about it. Can anything be too costly to give to him in light of what he gave for us? If this was her dowry, and I really believe it was, then culturally speaking, it meant that she was pretty much giving up any hope of ever getting married and having a family. You see, in that culture, a woman without a dowry wasn't likely to find a man willing To marry her. Sorry, girls, that's just the way it was back then. I'm not saying it was right. It just was a cultural thing. I mean, what a tremendous sacrifice Mary made to worship Jesus. I mean, look what it cost her. Think about that. Look what it cost her. Now look, because Mary spent so much time at Jesus' feet listening to him. This was unlike the disciples, by the way. The disciples followed Jesus. But I think they, all of them, pretty much had ulterior motives. It comes out in the Gospels how that they were looking for positions of honor and prestige in the coming kingdom. And that was the big reason why they were following him. I'm not saying they didn't love him. I'm not saying they didn't believe in him. Obviously, they did. I'm just saying that they followed Jesus with some agenda, whereas Mary didn't have any of that in her. I'm convinced Mary just loved Jesus. She loved sitting at his feet. She loved hearing his words. She wasn't looking to get anything from him. And because her hearing of his words was not polluted with self-interest, she listened carefully. We would say she hung on every word of Jesus. And because of it, she knew he was about ready to die. Now, he told his disciples at least three or four times in the Gospels And the more he got closer he got to the cross, he would repeat himself that he was going to Jerusalem where he would be betrayed into the hands of wicked men, crucified, but on the third day would rise again. I mean, he told them that it must have went in one ear and out the other. It didn't fit with their preconceived ideas of what Messiah was going to do because they're waiting for positions of prestige in the kingdom. And that went right in one ear and out the other because uh, when he was uh, he was arrested in the garden, they fled. Uh, when he was crucified, they f- felt all was gone, all was lost. And when the word came on that Sunday morning that the tomb was empty, they said, get lost, you women, you're crazy. And they, they dismissed it all. Not Mary. She knew he was about, she knew what he was about to suffer for her. And so she came to him with the most precious thing she had, this oil of spikenard to anoint him for burial. I mean, this was incredible to think about. Listen, her act here, I want want you to miss this, was a sacrificial offering of true worship by giving to Jesus what was most precious to her. I don't want you to miss that. That is what I believe the Holy Spirit is highlighting, all right? That it was a sacrificial offering of true worship Done by Mary, by giving to Jesus what was most precious to her. It seemed that Mary understood well what King David had expressed so many years earlier when he said, now you remember that David did a pretty dumb thing. He had the people numbered. We say, why was that so stupid? You only number what belongs to you, right? When my kids went to college, my wife and I helped to get them into their dorm. You go to Walmart, right? Walmart loves back to school, college, big time, right? And we bought all kinds of stuff for our kids, and then we went back to the dorm, and we took marker and wrote their names on those things, right? You write your name on what belongs to you. I don't go into your garage, guys, and start writing my name on your lawnmower or your weed whacker or something else, right? (laughs) David had no right to number the people. They didn't belong to him. And God took severe umbrage, I put it that way, and began to bring a plague on the land, and people began to die. And so David wanted to offer to God a sacrifice to stop the the, the judgment. And so he goes to a man named Aruna and asks if he could buy his threshing floor, which is on, actually on top of Mount Moriah. And Aruna says, "King, I give it to you. Take." Take the mountaintop threshing floor. Take the oxen, uh, the wood. I give it all to you for the offering. And David said, no, I will not offer my God. And remember, every offering in the Old Testament was an act of worship. I will not give to my God an offering of that which costs me nothing. I don't know if Mary had that in mind when she poured out everything to Jesus. Maybe, I don't know. I do know that she gave everything that was precious to her to Jesus. I want you to notice this. Mary didn't just open this flask, alabaster flask, containing this fragrant oil of spikenard and dab a little bit on Jesus. Well, here you go, Jesus, a little behind the ears and close it up and save the rest for herself. No, she didn't do that because she couldn't do that. Once the oil of spikenard was placed in one of these alabaster flasks, it was sealed. They had a way of doing that. They sealed it. You couldn't open it. If To open it, you had to break it open. And then you had to use all of it. You couldn't keep any because it would spoil. Perfumes in those days didn't keep. Uh, so once you opened them and they hit the air, you either used it all or it would become putrid, rancid. In other words, Mary is exemplifying for us an act of total commitment to her Lord. She is not holding anything back for herself. Her worship is complete. It's total. It reminds us of the very thing that Paul would say in Romans 12.1. He said, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, I want you to understand something. Paul's a rabbi. And so he has the Jewish sacrificial system in mind he realizes that's over now and we've entered into the new covenant but he's drawing an illustration upon one of the sacrifices in the old covenant and remember if you go to Leviticus you can read the various sacrifices the first one was the burnt offering uh one of the other was was the peace offering what what were these Well, in the burnt offering, that was the offering of consecration, of total commitment. Why why did it communicate that? Because the person brought the animal to the priest, who then killed it and put it on the altar of sacrifice and set it on fire, and the whole animal was burned up. In other words, it was totally given over to God. They did have a peace offering where they would bring the animal to the priest. He would kill it, barbecue it, give half back or some of it back to the person who brought it, burn up the rest to God, and then the person would go off into the side there and he would uh, eat the barbecued meat. The idea was I offered it to God, I'm eating part of it, God got the rest, we're coming into fellowship with each other, we have peace with each other. So when Paul talks in Romans 12:1, how they, we as Christians under the new covenant need to offer ourselves daily, I think is the idea, On the altar of sacrifice, he's talking about the burnt offering. That every day we should give ourselves completely to God. Total consecration. We don't live somewhat for God and somewhat for ourselves. That's not the idea. It's total consecration. And notice what Paul says, that you present your bodies every day as a living sacrifice. Listen, holy and pleasing to God. This is your, under the new covenant, your spiritual act of worship. We don't offer animals anymore. We offer ourselves. When I think today, guys, of how valuable our time is, right? We have come to a time in America and in the American church. People would rather write a check and just pay God off than to spend time with Him or to serve Him. I'm sorry, I have to put it that way. Uh, you know, i, I I'm I, I'm not saying that. If, if you give to the Lord and you can't serve because of some that's fine. I, I'm not putting you down. I'm just saying there are a lot of people in the church who would rather just write a check, throw it in the offering, and move on for the week. Because what is most precious to them is their time. Now we're talking about worship. And what was most precious to Mary was this oil of spikenard. She gave it all to Jesus. How does that line up with what's most precious to us today? For most of us, it's our time. How much time are we actually giving to God? Think about that for a second, okay? I mean, when I think about how many, how we Christians, I, I'm guilty of the same thing, but how we often measure out small amounts of time, the very thing Mary didn't do with the oil was sparking out, didn't measure, measure out small amounts and gave it to Jesus and kept the rest for herself. When I think about how Many Christians measure out their time during the week. Give a little dab here. I'll go to church once in a while on a Sunday. So for some folks, I can get them here once a month on a Sunday morning. I feel like I'm doing it's, it's well. Okay, that's what best we're going to get. But, and, and I'm talking in general about Christians who maybe measure out a little more time for a Wednesday night Bible study. Most don't even do that. I'm wondering how much time they measure out every week for their daily devotions, if they even have any. When I think about how we measure little dabs of time for God and then lavish the rest of our week on ourselves, doing what we want, going where we want, doing our own thing, it makes me wonder if we really understand what it means to worship the Lord through a life of total devotion and consecration. Let me share share with you a little story that I read years ago in a devotional. And it's by no means the most powerful example, I'm sure, of how two people sacrificed themselves to come worship God, but it really hit me. I don't know. It was so practical. It was just such a real story. It is a real story, but something we can all connect with, okay? Let me read it to you. The author said, and I quote: It happened in Munich, Germany. I got out of my warm bed and looked through the window covered with ice ferns at the new deep snow. I debated whether I should go to the worship service or stay at home and just read the Bible. I would, have, I would have to walk a half a block in the cold to catch the bus, but finally I decided to go, but only because I had to lead worship that Sunday. While I was riding the bus, I looked through the window and recognized two people trying hard to make their path through the deep snow. Mr. Trollman was a man in his 80s who had lost his eyesight. His only guidance was his 78-year-old wife, who was lame in one foot. Because they could not afford to ride the bus, they walked three miles each and every Sunday to church. They were driven by their love for the Lord. I was not able to do anything but blush, ashamed of myself. I thought of the duty which had motivated me, of the weak faith and love I had shown, without their knowledge and without a word, this old couple had taught me that love for God is the true motive for attending worship services, end quote. And I will add, worship is often costly, requiring sacrifice. And these folks were obviously true worshipers. They were willing to make the sacrifice. Can you imagine a blind man in his 80s and a very elderly woman with a lame foot walking through deep snow three miles? I'm not going to even get into why the church didn't pick him up. I'm not even going there. I mean, you know. I'm not sure I'd walk three miles to a church that wouldn't even pick me up to go to, but okay. Um, but these folks obviously loved the Lord. They, they were devoted to Him. This was their, part of their act of worship to Him. I mean, let's not forget, of course, that for centuries under the Roman persecution, it cost Christians dearly to worship the Lord. They did it in catacombs and caves and underground. Today, of course, we see Christians underground worshiping the Lord in China and other communist countries, in Islamic countries. And, of course, their worship is costing them. Uh, It could cost them ultimately their freedom and maybe even their lives if they're caught. And then I look at us today in America. In good heavens, I mean, now we've made it so easy with live streaming. I was talking to a group of pastors the other day. We're a little worried that some folks may never come back to church. (laughs) Now I'm not saying if you're watching on live stream because you're you're sick or you have a medical con- condition or something else is prohibiting you from coming to church. Maybe you're elderly and you know you want to make sure you don't catch this COVID. I understand that. But there's a lot of folks who could make it to church that are now opting just for the comfort of watching it on T V. Bible says, don't forsake the fellowship of the saints. There are things that we can't get from watching service on TV that we can only get in the presence of one another as we worship God. All right, our first point, worship is costly. Our second point, because it's costly, worship, true worship, is criticized. Verse 4, Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? When you begin to worship the Lord, truly worship the Lord, not lip service, but with your life, there will often be those in your life, like Judas, who will criticize you for wasting your money, for wasting your time, and for wasting any other sacrifice that you make in service to the Lord because you love and worship the Lord. Do you realize these are the first recorded words of Judas Iscariot in the Gospels? The first words that the Holy Spirit chose to record that came from the lips of Judas Iscariot. Again, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii? And given to the poor. Hang on to that for a second. I have found that often the most zealous sounding people, the ones who are always virtue shaming the rest in church, are some of the most carnal. The thing about murmuring and complaining is it's catchy, it's it's infectious. We don't see it here in John, but in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, verse 8, when Judas said, why was this fragrant oil not sold and given money, money given to the poor? The other disciples chimed in, yeah, yeah, why this waste? Real spiritual group. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Why this waste? Now, John adds in verse 6, this Judas said not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. He had, you know, control of the money box and used to take what was put in it. What a hypocrite. One pastor and author said this about Judas. I don't think we need to say any more. He said, and I quote, Judas was the great tragedy of humanity, and his life serves as a solemn warning to all who superficially attach themselves to Jesus yet whose hearts are far from him, hearts that are given over to materialism and selfishness and are lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God who come on Sunday and offer Jesus, quote-unquote, a kiss, and yet who betray him all week long. The church is full of selfish religious hypocrites, who can never understand the depth of the love and sacrifice involved in true worship to God. The self-abandonment and extravagance so freely poured out to him by those who truly love him, always incenses the selfish, greedy, religious hypocrite, who feigns love for Jesus, but in actuality loves themselves above all else. Like Judas, so close to Jesus, yes, in church every week, some of them. Like Judas, so close to Jesus and yet so far away. Can you imagine the remorse and agony he must be experiencing at this moment? It must be beyond belief. Living in the light but dying in darkness, he is doomed to spend eternity in the blackness and torment of hell forever. Guys, Judas was never a true worshiper. In fact, because Judas was never saved. Jesus made that clear. We'll see it as we progress in John's Gospel. Jesus made it very clear. Judas was never truly saved. Yet he was a follower of Jesus, wasn't he? Do you know how many people are quote-unquote followers of Jesus and are in church right now as we speak who are like Judas? It's all a show. It's all a show. I think maybe they're deceiving themselves. Their acting is so good. Judas was never a true worshiper, but he was sure critical of those who were, right? Like Mary. I mean, when you come to a place where you want to go all out for Jesus, make it a total commitment to Him, to serve and worship Him with all your heart and life, you will always run into those who will say to you, what are you doing? I'm talking about religious people. What are you doing? Have you flipped out? You know, you don't have to be a fanatic. Hang on to that thought for a second. Whenever I teach on this, I always think about Jim Elliott. You've heard me talk about Jim Elliott many times over the years. Let me just mention him again. Jim Elliott grew up in a Christian home. His family were not unbelievers. Jim was enrolled in medical school. He was going to be a doctor when the Lord laid on his heart to become a missionary to Ecuador and the Alca Indians. When he told his family what He felt God was leading him to do. They said to him, Jim, are you crazy? Don't be a fool, Jim. You're going to give up a life of prestige and honor and affluence. For what? To minister to some group of savages down in a third world part of the world? Jim, don't be a fool. To which Jim Elliott gave that famous response, that man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. When I first heard that story, in my heart I was critical of his family. What kind of Christians are they? What kind of Christians would would challenge a guy not to go and serve God in the mission field? Wow, are they lousy Christians? Until I was at a pastor's conference a few years ago. And it was lunchtime, so we were waiting outside the mess hall with a line waiting to get in, and I was talking to a couple. He was older. She was younger. They had just gotten married and had a baby. She was holding this seven-, eight-month-old baby in her arms. He had uh, started and run a very successful business for many years. But now that they were saved, they had gotten married uh, you know, and had the baby and so on, Now they both felt that God was leading them to leave this business and move to the inner city Detroit area to start a Calvary Chapel. Now in my heart, I said, are you crazy? Are you crazy? You're going to take that little baby into that war zone? Don't be a fool, I'm thinking to myself. God said, oh, what about Jim Elliott? You were pretty hard on his parents. Yeah, I guess I was, Lord. Yeah, I had to repent. Because again, you know what? God will lead us to do some things that by human standards and all, perception seems foolish. But you know what? And I believe that sometimes Christians and Christian family are some of the biggest deterrents from people taking a step in faith for the Lord. I mean, this idea, you don't have to be a fanatic to worship and serve God. Maybe you've heard that. Folks, any person who would say that has no idea what it means to be a true worshiper. Because that is the very definition of what being a true worshiper is all about. We get the word fan, right? We see people who are baseball fans. Basketball fans, right? Uh, you know, football fans. Of course, that's short for fanatic, right? Isn't it humorous that the same people that see us holding our hands up and praising the Lord think we're nuts, and yet they're at ball games all painted up and, you know, and they're out there screaming, you know, and see, they're fanatics for sports. We're fanatics for Jesus. And anybody who is a true worshiper understands what that means. I mean, he is our life. We get excited about Jesus, about how he's working, what he's doing, how he's saving people. We get excited about that. Anyone who would say to you, you don't have to be a fanatic to love God or to serve God. Understand this. They're not a true worshiper. They have no idea what it means to be a true worshiper. Pray for them. Because I believe many of them are saved. They just need to understand they need to go all the way. They need to stop this playing games with God and be all in, all in. Now Matthew tells us that Judas and the other disciples asked indignantly, Matthew 26, verse 8, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? Highlight the word wasted. Wasted. Interesting. These, again, were not spiritual men at this point. I'm not saying they weren't saved under the Old Testament economy. They were definitely not spirit-filled New Testament believers at this time. That was That's coming. Okay, John 20. It's coming. Folks, the fact of the matter is that nothing we give to the Lord or do for the Lord is ever wasted. Never. Didn't Jesus say, even if you gave a cup of cold water to one of my disciples in my name, you will not lose your reward. Everything we do for Jesus is it's never wasted. The problem is, we are not, the church of Jesus Christ has gotten so worldly-minded, focusing on their kingdom on the earth. When Paul said, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Jesus talked about laying up treasures in heaven, right? Where moth and rust could never destroy, thieves could not break in and steal. But instead, many people are laying up for themselves treasures on the earth, and they're going to be total total losers someday. But the Church of Jesus Christ in America, because we have so much, so many blessings, Christians' eyes are so focused on this life. They think that what people give up now to use to serve the Lord is wasted. My heart breaks for them because after laying up for themselves treasures on earth for all these years of their lives, when they get to heaven, they're going to realize, no, that was the waste, and now I've entered into heaven like a pauper, saved, rejoicing, but nothing to show for it. The idea of putting the Lord first, guys, and giving him our best is always the right thing to do. That's what a life of true worship is all about. So what can Mary teach us about worship? True worship, first of all, that true worship is costly. Secondly, that true worship is criticized. And we'll end with this one today. Number three, that true worship is Christ-centered. Verse seven, but Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always. But me, you do not have always. And we'll connect that with what Mark records. Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do good for them. But me, you do not have always. Now, guys... In saying this, Jesus wasn't being insensitive to the needs of the poor. He was simply emphasizing the priority of worship. Taking care of the poor is an important thing. But the worship of God, listen, is the most important thing. As Christians, we are first and foremost true worshipers. Again, John 4, verses 23 and 4. As Christians, we are first and foremost true worshipers. Now I know people that don't understand what that means will say, well, what about the poor, though? You don't care about the poor. You Christians go to church and sing, and you don't do anything to help the poor. Well, that's not true. Who said that? We're not saying that. Listen, if we truly love and worship God, truly love and worship God, we will underline that. We will be concerned for the welfare of those made in His image. That's a given. You cannot love God. Whom you have not seen. If you don't love your brothers and sisters whom you have seen, and then others that may not even be your family in Christ. Whenever there's an earthquake somewhere in the world, or some uh, event like a hurricane, or something that devastates an entire area of people that don't know Jesus, who's the first one to send money and relief, and goes over there to help in person? It's the Christian church. Because we love people. Because we know they've been made in God's image and they're eternal beings. And by showing them the love of helping them in the physical, we are really opening a door hopefully into their heart to help them for the eternal. Now listen to me. Meeting human needs is important. Not putting that down. But meeting human needs always flows from the worship of God and must never come before it. Otherwise, the church becomes just another social agency and ceases to be the spiritual entity that God designed it to be, the body of Christ. The body of Christ with the life of the Holy Spirit flowing through us the same way that life-giving blood flows through our physical body. See, that's very important to understand. It is the life of the Holy Spirit flowing through us that makes us true worshipers because that's what it means to be born again. We give our heart to Christ. The spirit of God comes in and fills us. We are born again. We are spirit man or comes forth. We we are born again of the spirit. And just like, you know, our physical bodies are, are, you know, a blood drive system. Our spiritual man is a spirit drive system. The Holy Spirit flows through us and gives us life and makes us true worshipers. The same way God has designed blood to flow through our physical bodies and give us life. But once we receive Christ, guys, we are connected like cells in one body, the body of Christ. And we become a living organism, not a dead organization. We've talked about that. This is where the modern church, the modern social church, is missing the point and has gone from a Christ-centered to a man-centered approach to Christianity. You know, many liberal churches send missionaries to the mission field, listen, to dig well so that the poor can have clean water to drink, to teach modern farming techniques so that they can have more food to eat, to, you know, build schools and houses so that they have places to live and schools where they can be properly educated. And listen, all of that is well and fine. But the one thing that is lacking Really, the only thing that matters for the eternal benefit of of the poor in these third-world countries. The one thing that people really need that the liberal churches don't give the poor on the mission field is the gospel. The gospel. I mean, Jesus never intended his church to be a social agency. He intended it to be a spiritual entity. Jesus didn't tell his church to go into all the world and feed the hungry, clothe the naked, right? Uh, Build schools and housing for the poor. Give them clean water to drink. Look, those are worthy endeavors. And I'm not putting down any of that, per se. I'm not saying that in the course of ministering to people in Jesus' name, we, you know, doing those things is wrong. I'm not saying that. It's just that Jesus in the Great Commission told his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel because that's the only thing that will benefit people for eternity as they receive the gospel. I mean, look, we can feed the hungry and clothe the naked. But if that's all we do in the mission field, if all we do is minister to the physical man but neglect the spiritual man, listen to me carefully, then all we're doing for these poor people is launching them into a Christless eternity with a full belly and a warm body. The mission of the church, as expressed by Jesus in the Great Commission, is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to be focused on the spiritual needs of people primarily and then their physical needs secondarily. If we reverse that and put the physical first and the spiritual second or neglect it altogether, again, we stop being the church of Jesus Christ and become just another social agency. The church is not, was never intended to be a glorified red cross, which was is a good social agency. Again, it was designed by God to be a spiritual entity. The church is not a dead organization. It is a living organism. It's the body of Christ on the earth. And our main responsibility is to preach the gospel to everyone we come in contact with. That's the Great Commission. And in the course of doing that, yeah, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, help the disadvantaged. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But those things should take a backseat to our primary mission, which is to save the lost. To save the lost. This is why the church exists. This is our mission. Again, to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Why is that our mission? Because our Lord Jesus Christ said it was his mission. Luke 19.10, he said, I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. And then commissioned his church to go into all the world and do the same. Follow his example. Somewhere along the line, we've missed it. And you know why we missed it? The evangelical church hasn't missed it. I don't mean to imply that. What has missed it is the liberal church, the kind we have talked about in, on Wednesday, the letter to Sardis, and we'll talk again when we get to the letter of Laodicea. It's the liberal church, the do-gooders, the, the social justice warriors, those that think that the whole mission of the church is to help people physically because they're not spiritual themselves. They're dead in trespasses and sins. They're not alive in the spirit. And because of it, that's not a priority to give people the gospel. Look, again, the church exists. It is our mission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, which alone can save the lost, listen, and turn them into true worshipers. That's what the Father is seeking. That's what it's all about. Now listen, as we bring this to a close. Here in America, this man-centered approach to worshiping God takes... Different forms, stemming from different man-centered motives. Oh, a while back, years ago, uh, you, most of you have heard of Joel Osteen. He pastors one of the largest churches in America, down in Texas, right? A few years ago, his wife, Victoria Osteen, made a statement that <laughs> caught a lot of us. Uh, I shouldn't say off guard, but wow, okay? Here's what Victoria Osteen said. Uh, she said, and I quote, when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. Did you understand that? When, when, when we, wow, that, uh, that's uh, earth shattering news. When we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. We're doing it for ourself because God takes pleasure when we're happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy this morning. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy, end quote. That statement epitomizes the man centered, self obsessed approach to Christianity that we see in so many churches today. Hey, at least she's honest. At least she's honest. It really isn't about God anymore. In many churches, not all, many. It really isn't about God anymore. He's really not the focus. It's all about us how our Christianity will benefit us, how it will make us feel. God wants you happy. See, she's feeding right in to the man-centered message that has gone out and has filled many churches to capacity. It's tragic that today the true worship of God which is supremely Christ-centered, that's the point we're working on. It's tragic today that true worship, the true worship of God has been hijacked and redirected towards self in so many churches, and is now designed, worship that is, not to exalt God, but to exalt self. You say, well, how? What do you mean? By presenting such a high-energy worship service, the goal of which being to get people so pumped up, so emotional, on such a Holy Spirit high, that they will keep coming back to church next week for their next worship fix. It's not worshiping God. It's a kind of a drug that churches are passing out through their worship services. It doesn't worship at all. It's more in line with some kind of a sanctified pep rally or rock concert. And the same is true with the messages that are coming from many pulpits across this nation. Many messages being preached by many pastors who are man-pleasers. It's all about tickling ears, Right? Telling people what they want to hear, man-centered, feelings-oriented, warm and fuzzy, happy talk messages. Again, designed to make people people feel good about themselves, so they will keep coming back every week, and of course, keep giving is the idea. If it's right, it's we are in the very time in the last days where Paul the apostle warned us in 2nd Timothy 4 verse 3 for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound wholesome teaching from the word of God these are churchgoers now we're not talking about the world the world never has tolerated wholesome teaching from God's word we're talking about churchgoers now right coming a time when people in the church will no longer listen to and to sound and wholesome teaching from God's word they will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear well we are here folks we are here You folks are in the minority. Just let's be clear about that. You're in the minority. You don't want your ears tickled. You want the word of God. Whatever God has got to say to you, you want it. But look around you. You're not filling a stadium. Turn on some of these other guys. It's packed. Tickling ears is very much in vogue today. Look, I'm done. Let me just say this. We'll close. It is the worship of God that must be our consuming passion. Now, listen, again, I said this the first service. I'll say it to you guys. I'm of the mindset that I can't teach something without seriously desiring to live it out. Otherwise, I'm a hypocrite. And so as I prepared this message, I started bringing my own heart before the Lord. Lord, I'm telling these people that they need to have a passion for you. They need to make worship their number one priority. Well, where's my heart with you? Oh, don't get me wrong. I, I love the Lord. and I'm not leading some secret life that, you know, you'd be shocked if you knew what was going on. No. My life is pretty dull. It's pretty When I say dull, I mean, I have a routine. Every week it's the same thing. I have administrative things I do on, on, on Mondays and Tuesdays. Uh, Tuesday afternoon, I start studying for Wednesday. Wednesday all day I study, then then go over my notes all afternoon, and I come to church and I teach. Thursday morning, I teach a men's Bible study, and then I go from there and I do other loose ends. And Friday I start studying for Sunday, and, and, and you get the idea. And I go through all these things joyfully. This is my routine. But sometimes, like Jesus told the church of Ephesus in Acts chapter 2. You are zealous for good works, but you've left your first love. And I said, Lord, I love you. And I know most Christians love you. Of course they do. All Christians love you. But that's not enough. I want to be in love with you. That's where passion comes. That's where worship really becomes on fire. And I'll just tell you, I'm, I'm praying and I'm seeking God that he would put a fire on me, that he would revive my heart, my walk. And I've been praying that for you guys too. The worship of God must be our consuming passion and the motivation for everything we do in our Christian lives. Will this honor God? Will this worship God? If I do this, will this dishonor God? Will this be a selfish act designed to exalt me? and so on. One of the main ways this passion for God is expressed is in our corporate worship. What should be the high point of our week? I'm talking about ideally. Coming to church here to sing God's praises as a corporate body, that should be one of the high points of our week, maybe the high point, okay? But I know it's not for many because they have this mindset, well, I don't have to get there exactly at 8.30 or 10.30, you got an extra 20 minutes because that's only worship. That's only worship. Well, I'm sure the Lord must feel very happy about that. God, I'm just going to take my time sleeping a little bit because really the first 20 minutes of church, that's just worship. See the mindset? You see how wrong we are? We don't even realize it. Look, coming to church on time, So we can worship him together, hear his word being taught, provides, listen, the passion and the motivation for us then to go out into the world throughout our week and treat our fellow man with the love of God. That's where worship becomes reality. That's where it's not just an act of worship, it's a life of worship. I'll end by saying this. Next time we'll finish this little study in worship, but looking at Mary of Bethany is not just an example of worship. It wasn't, you know, excuse me, not not just a um, looking at Mary, who didn't just worship a verb, right? It wasn't just an an act of worship. It was a life of worship she was exemplifying. That's what we really need. God is after not just the act of worship. You might come here honestly and sincerely worship him. But if you're not a a worshiper, if you're not a true, through your whole life, then worship becomes a verb and not a noun. And that's what we need to understand. With Mary, it was her life. And may God give us the grace to, by his strength to make it our life as well. So come on back next week and we will look at this. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Father, we come to this portion of Scripture. um, Well, I know I'm ashamed in many ways. When I look at Mary and the depth of love and commitment she had for you, what it cost her to worship you, how she took the criticism and it didn't sway her. Lord, thank you for her example. But give me, all of us, grace to live that out in our own lives. We ask you to bless as we finish this message. Actually in a couple weeks. So Lord... We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.